Thank you very much, Dawn. Um, I, I, reflecting on uh, this event, it's, um, <clears throat> it's just great to be here at the Richmond RMA. I, I'm pretty sure I should, I need to check the data. You know, I'm always checking the data. Um, but I, I, I'm virtually certain this, I've spoken to this group more than any other group since I've been president. It feels like my hometown pitch, my hometown club, my hometown stadium, so it's, it's a delight to be here. Uh, it's also um, uh, particularly good this time. So usually when we first started holding, the, I first started doing these, we held these on a, a cold January day, uh, sometimes December, uh, often in the morning. This used to be the broadest breakfast and... Um, the, you know, in one year, in fact, there was a, an ice storm, I remember, the day of, the night of. And um, in contrast now, you know, early May puts us in the midst of just the glorious springtime weather we typically get in Richmond. Um, and, you know, our landscape here is, is, is uh, you know, littered with uh, azaleas and dogwoods. And it, it's hard not to get into, a, you know, a cheery sort of optimistic state of mind here. I'm going to be discussing economic conditions, however. And it's not for nothing that they call uh, economics the dismal science. Um, so my description of the outlook might be viewed as contrasting with the cheery thoughts inspired by this magnificent um, spring weather. Nonetheless, I'm going to argue uh, that um, this situation we're in economically is not as dismal as you would think, uh, particularly if you follow media reports on the economy. And the economic landscape actually has its attractive uh, elements. Before I begin, though, I do the thing that you know I'm going to do and state that uh, my remarks um, re reflect my own views and not necessarily those of anyone else on the Federal Open Market Committee or in the Federal Reserve System. So I'll be speaking for myself today. So um, I'll start with some good news about the economic situation. Inflation remains well contained, and it's worth emphasizing this. Over the last four quarters, the most reliable measure of prices that we have, the price index for personal consumption expenditures, uh, has risen at 1.2% uh, over that time period. And that's on the low side of recent experience. Inflation has been fluctuating over the last several years at around 2%. Just a year and a half ago, uh, inflation was 2.8%, uh, for example. I think there's, this reflects widespread confidence that the Federal Reserve is going to keep inflation low and stable. And that's consistent with the goal we announced in January of last year, um, a, an explicit numerical objective for inflation of 2% uh, per year. Indeed, most forecasters uh, that you read are expecting inflation to run at or a little bit below 2% over the next few years. And household surveys and financial market indicators of uh, inflation expectations, how, how, how high inflation is expected to be over the near term, remain at their long-term averages. <clears throat> so and there's evidence that no one expects inflation to fall dramatically or rise dramatically in the near term, uh, and that's heartening. One uh, local example of the confidence of, um, in, in our inflation outlook was the announcement by the College of William and Mary, uh, you may have caught this a week or two ago, that, that tuition charges would remain fixed over a student's entire four-year term at the college, and that suggests some assurance that inflation is well, relatively well, predictable and relatively well-contained, enough for them, the College of Willing, William & Mary, to be willing to take on four-year risk uh, involving uh, overall price level. 
My own view uh, is that inflation is likely to begin edge, edging back towards the FOMC's uh, target of 2% um, by next year uh, and should get pretty close to that next year. In contrast to inflation, which over time is determined virtually entirely by central bank actions, real economic growth and labor market conditions are affected by a wide variety of factors that are outside a central bank's control. And that, it's that real economic conditions uh, that have many people viewing our economy as disappointing uh, lately. Now, to get a handle on that disappointment, think back to the beginning of this uh, new millennium we're in and recall the pervasive optimism uh, at the time. Uh, much of that optimism was based on the past experience we'd had with America's economy. For example, over the previous half century, we'd enjoyed really remarkable economic performance. Real gross domestic product, that's our best, most comprehensive and reliable measure of overall economic activity and incomes in our country. Real gross domestic product grew at 3.5% at an annual rate between 1950 and 2000, 3.5%. Since 2000, though, uh, growth has fallen short of that long-run average. We had a very severe recession in 2008, in 2009, as you know, and growth has um, averaged 2.1% since then, since that recession, well below that longer run average of 3.5%. Looking ahead, I think the key question regarding the economic outlook is whether growth is going to remain relatively low, like we've seen since the recession, or will instead return to the rates that we saw in the second half of the 20th century. Now, this is an active area of economic research. It would make a suitable topic for a university seminar or perhaps a massive open online course, these MOOCs you may have heard about. Um, and, and I'm not, I'm not uh, crafting one. I'll warn you right here. Um, but I, I, because it's such an involved topic, I'm not going to try and be comprehensive. Um, but I want to take a, a look at a few of uh, the features of the economy that we've had over the last um, couple of years that expansion we've been in, uh, and the, try to highlight the areas that really differentiate this expansion from what we experienced in the second half of the 20th century, just to give you a, a sense of, well, where, you know, should we be disappointed and by how much should we dis be disappointed and why? So let's start off by breaking down real GDP growth into two components. One is the growth of employment, and the other is the growth of GDP per employee, uh, G GDP per worker. That latter concept, the ratio of GDP per worker, is called productivity. It's, it's how much, essentially the average of how much output an individual worker uh, can create um, when uh, employed. Now, uh, let's start with the latter, labor productivity. That increased at an average of 1.8% per year from 1950 to 2000. And in this expansion, Labor productivity uh, increased rapidly in the second half of 2009 as we bounced out, out of the recession. And that's typical when coming out of a deep recession. There's often a sharp rebound in labor productivity. Um, but since then, the trend in productivity has only been about 1% at an annual rate. And that's contributed to the slowness of the expansion. The fact that it's 1% instead of that 1.8% second half of the 20th century trend. Slower productivity growth is therefore responsible for a significant portion of the growth shortfall in this expansion, 
uh, you know, the difference between 2.1% GDP growth and 3.5% GDP growth. <clears throat> so productivity growth, um, I, could, I could give an entire speech on that. I could give an entire MOOC on that. Um, is, it's a consequence of many disparate factors all coming together. Research and development, uh, the scientific inquiry that generates new ideas and, and new learning, new knowledge, technical knowledge. That, um, and then there's the application of that knowledge in new businesses, new ways of doing things, new services. Uh, there's business capital outlays that actually put those new ideas into effect. There's the skills of our labor force that often have to sort of adapt and catch up to, to learn how to new, use new technologies. And then there's public sector infrastructure investment. So I give you sort of a broad sense of a lot of things that go into the, the hopper to, to, uh, that, that determine, go into the, the soup that generates uh, labor productivity growth. Notice that monetary policy is not on this list. It's an example of the, the forces that drive economic growth that are outside the central bank's control. All right, so that's labor productivity growth. Slower this time, not sure why. Um, it has to do with the vagaries of a lot of things that shift from time to time. Um, labor force growth, can, labor force productivity can uh, fluctuate from time to time, can be on the low side, on the high side. We're on the low side of historic experience, not out of, totally out of bounds, but on the low side of historic experience now. So set aside labor productivity growth. The rest of real GDP growth is attributable to the growth in the amount of labor inputs being supplied to the process that generates output. So employment grew at a 1.7% annual rate from 1950 to 2000. I'm going to be throwing a lot of numbers at you, but I'll, I'll, I'll try and keep it clear. Employment fell dramatically during the recession. This always happens. This is, in fact, what defines a recession. And in the immediate aftermath, so after the recession ended in June of 2009, employment kept de declining a little bit. And it's, since it's bottomed out, it's expanded at only a 1.1% annual rate, far short of the 1.7% from uh, last, uh, the end of the last century. So a significant portion of the growth shortfall is attributable to slower growth in employment, what's going on in labor markets. Now, movements in employment have been move, mirrored by movements in unemployment uh, during this um, cycle. Uh, during the recession, the unemployment rate, uh, the fraction of the labor force that's out of work, arose from 5.0% in December of 2007 uh, to 10.0% in October of 2009. During the expansion, the unemployment rate has fallen to a level of, well, 7.5% as of April uh, in this morning's jobs report. That pace is about seven-tenths of a percentage point decline per year. So the rate at which unemployment uh, has been coming down to seven-tenths of a percentage point per year. That's faster than the pace at which unemployment fell in the last two business cycle expansions. So this expansion resembles other recent expansions in the pace at which we've been able to reduce the pool of unemployed workers. The unusual feature of this expansion relative to the 20th century is the evolution of the size of the labor force, just how many people are either employed or looking for work. The fraction of the working age population that is either working or actively working, looking for work, economists call this the labor force participation rate, the fraction of the population that's in the workforce, either looking for work or working, 
That fraction rose steadily from 1950 to 2000. Women were entering the labor force in, in huge numbers, and improving health allowed people to work far later in life. So the participation rate among older workers in their 50s and 60s was rising steadily. Since 2000, the labor force participation rate has fallen significantly from a peak of over 67% to just 63.3% as of March, and actually the April number is the same thing. Much of that decline occurred during the Great Recession, and so understanding people's decisions about whether to participate in the labor market are really essential to understanding the economic outlook now and and the, the reason for our disappointing uh, growth performance. So one obvious explanation for the decline in the labor force uh, participation is that workers get discouraged, right? Um, The unemployment rate rises, um, labor market conditions are viewed as adverse, um, and uh, that can keep people from looking for work. It can discourage them from actually getting out of the, you know, out of the labor force pool into the labor force pool. And that effect was was pronounced during the Great Recession. You can see that in the data. And that's understandable given the magnitude of the increase in unemployment that we saw. But a good deal of time has passed since that recession. And the unemployment rate, as I said, has come down significantly. Moreover, labor force participation uh, was affected by demographic trends um, and other structural factors even before the recession. And these trends have continued and perhaps intensified since then. So I want to I take a little bit of time to go into this. I haven't done this. I, I, people haven't done that. I haven't seen people do this in, in uh, sort of outlook talks that people give. And this is something that's worth delving into. And I think there's going to be a lot of research on this in the next couple of years. So um, I'm, I'm going to be looking at the decision to participate in the labor force. What, what, what drives whether people are out of the workforce or in the workforce, and how has that changed over time? So one significant development over the last few years has been the sharp fall in the labor force participation of young people. In December of 07, throw some more numbers at you, the participation rate for people aged 16 to 24 was 59.2%. Right at the beginning, just before the recession began, 59.2%. It fell during the recession and has fallen further since. It's now at 54.5%. A pretty big swing, more than 10% fall in that rate, or about 10%. Now, you might hope that this simply reflects young people pursuing higher education, or maybe students are deciding to spend more time studying if they're already in school. Um, And there's some evidence to support that notion. Uh, Education enrollment rates are rising, and there's some other indirect evidence as well. And so, on the other hand, it may reflect the difficulty finding jobs. It could be that young people are having a harder time finding entry-level jobs, and that makes the opportunity cost of going to school lower, so it makes it more attractive to get education. On the other hand, it may reflect a response to the widening wage premium associated with higher levels of education, the gap between the typical earnings of a college-educated worker and and, and a, a worker with only a high school degree or less than high school degree has been widening steadily since the 70s, and that widening trend has continued in the last decade, perhaps even accelerated. Now, that's a broader structural factor having to do with the way technology has enhanced the productivity of educated workers at a rate greater than the rate at which it's improved the productivity of less skilled workers, which is a complicated way of saying that 
the new technology that's making that's increasing standards of living requires some skills to operate, some new skills, and the people that have those skills um, are 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 being rewarded in the in the job market. We're not keeping up with our education system. We're not increasing the supply of skilled workers fast enough relative to the demand for skilled workers. And as you guys all know, you know if the supply if the demand for something is outstripping the supply, the relative price is going up, and that's what's driving up the relative wage of educated workers, it could be that the increase in college enrollment reflects a response from that to that, in which case it's a structural factor that's going to be with us for some time. So at the older end, let's go to the older end of the, talked about young people, let's go to the older end of the, um, the labor market. There's a basic demographic fact, we were talking about it at the lunch table, that over the last decade, the baby boom generation has begun entering the age ranges uh, in which labor force participation typically falls. This would be the late 50s, 60s. Um, so an increasing fraction of the labor force has moved into uh, low participation rate demographic groups. And the ba as the baby boomers continue to age, uh, this is going to continue to pull down the average labor force participation rate over time. So that's a factor depressing labor force participation. Now, turning to the middle of the age distribution, economists who study labor markets often uh, label skilled workers between 25 and 54 the prime working age population. This is the group characterized by very high participation rates, generally good health, relatively high productivity, and so they play a really key role in economic growth. So the flip side of what I just told you about old, older workers is at work here. Baby boomers have been aging out of this group, and that's um, having a, a, an effect um, so that's depressing the growth rate of this group. Um, so people are leaving it faster than they're entering it. This group in the 1980s was growing by about two and a quarter percent, the prime working age population, annually. But by the late 90s, that had fallen to below one percent a year. And the size of the working age population, 25 to 54, is shrinking in the United States, the size of the population. On top of that, participation rates for this group have been edging downward over the years. Um, they've fallen from 84% in 2000 to 81.4% in 2012. Now, this is poorly understood. Uh, weak economic activity could account for this uh, decline, but uh, there may be some secular declines uh, underway, uh, some secular trends underway as well. So w this is something that needs some study. So to summarize then, the slow growth in real GDP in this expansion is related both to lower productivity growth and to the decline in labor force participation. Some of the shortfall in um, labor force participation could reflect the lingering effects of the Great Recession, of uh, discouraging people from looking for work, but there are longer-run structural trends, such as our aging population, uh, the changing schooling decisions of young workers, and uh, these seem to be playing an important role, these structural factors. If these structural factors are important, and I believe they probably are, we need to adjust to the implication that GDP growth will continue to fluctuate around a 2% trend for the foreseeable future. Now, with that longer-run perspective in mind, let's turn our attention to the kind of the recent data and what we might expect over the next year or two. So in recent quarters, we've seen a kind of a seesaw pattern, uh, with growth looking fairly strong for a couple of months and, and then looking fairly weak for a couple of months. For example, real GDP grew at a four-tenths of a percent annual rate in the fourth quarter, very tepid, uh, virtually flat, 
um, but is estimated to have grown at 2.5% at an annual rate in the first quarter, so surge upward. Now, one exception to this choppiness has been housing activity, and that seems to be finally on a solid growth path. New housing starts have more than doubled from the low point uh, they reached in April of 2009. They've risen by an especially rapid 47% over the last 12 months. Home prices are on the upswing as well, rising almost 10% in the last 12 months. Now, I should caution, though, that residential investment is only 2.5% or so of GDP. So housing by itself is making only a modest contri contribution to overall GDP growth. Uh, but you know, the improvement in the housing market uh, does seem to have bolstered households' confidence in the market value of what is, for most households, their most um, valuable uh, asset. That leads me to the outlook for consumer spending, uh, and that counts for 70% of GDP. So we can f it's important to, to understand this. Over the last four quarters, real consumer spending has risen by 2.0%, right in line with real GDP growth. And it's hard to have GDP growth be much different from what consumer spending growth is if it's going to be 70% of the economy. Real disposable income, though, this is people's income adjusted for inflation after taxes and other deductions, real disposable personal income has risen by only nine-tenths of a percent over those same four quarters, and that raises an obvious question about the viability of consumer spending growth we're seeing now. The slow growth in spending in part reflects sluggish compensation growth. For example, average hourly earnings have only risen 1.8% over the last 12 months through March. Um, that's barely ahead of inflation. Another uh, factor that has lowered take-home pay is the increase in federal taxes that took place in, um, took effect in January. More broadly, though, and, and here's what I think the real key thing is to focus on with regard to consumer spending. The breadth and the depth of the income and wealth shocks that households experienced during the Great Recession, um, I think they're undoubtedly adding to cautious attitudes among American consumers. Um, some memories are likely to fade rap such, such memories, I think, are, are unlikely to fade rapidly. I think, there, I think it's going to be many years before people forget about uh, the Great Recession and, and what, um, what kind of pain it caused. Um, so I'm, I'm, I, see a, I see it hard to be very bullish about consumer spending, and I, I see it as very hard to make the case that consumer spending growth is going to accelerate to 3 or 4%. And to get a GDP forecast of 3 or 4%, you need consumer spending uh, to, to, to accelerate. Business capital spending is likely to make a sizable contribution to growth over the next few years. Not surprisingly, investment fell sharply during the recession, but technological advances have continued pace, and they've continued to provide, I think, ample motive and opportunity for firms uh, to invest, even the absence of real GDP growth. It seems like um, a lot of companies are um, uh, devoting their attention to improving the effectiveness of the operations they have um, and deploying new technologies to do that, rather than deploying uh, you know, new investment capital to expand operations. So business fixed investment rose at a 5.5% rate last year, and most forecasters expect solid growth this year and next, and uh, that seems reasonable to me. So despite these bright spots in consumer spending and business investment and housing. Um, there are some important challenges uh, that I think are going to be holding back growth and, and deserve some attention. The first is the, that the federal fiscal outlook is an utter mess. Last year, the 
deficit at the federal level uh, exceeded $1 trillion. That's 6.9% of GDP. That's unsustainable. Uh, you've heard me say that before. Projections by the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office show the deficit declining for several years and then increasing without bound as a fraction of GDP. That's unsustainable. Uh, it's not going to happen. The large deficit puts the stock of federal debt on a like an upward trajectory that is going to bump into uh, some real problems eventually. Um, and some combination of higher taxes and uh, less spending growth is, is virtually inevitable. It's not clear, though, to anyone, I think, what combination of higher spending and taxes we're going to resort to, we're going to have to adopt, and when uh, that's going to happen. And so there's a pervasive uncertainty. Uh, there's a lot of shoes that could drop. No, people aren't sure just which shoe it's going to be. But uh, if you think about the range of ways in which federal policy, uh, federal fiscal policy, spending and taxes, affect economic decisions uh, for firms, for banks, for consumers, uh, progress, spending programs, for example, that involve jobs, um, tax rates that involve that affect the profitability of investment expenditures. If you think about the vast array of things that, that are affected by this and the ways in which it, it's uncertain how those things are going to shake out, you can understand a pervasive uncertainty that is, um, seems highly likely to be affecting business and household decisions right now. It looks unlikely that we're going to see a grand bargain uh, anytime soon that's going to put the federal budget on a sustainable long-term path. Until we do, I think there's going to be this overhang of uncertainty that holds back growth. Another challenge for the U.S. economy is Europe. Uh, the euro area is in a recession. Uh, their unemployment rate continues to rise. Um, and um, one result would be of this is a weak demand for U.S. exports, and we've seen that in the data. Several European countries are, have fiscal imbalances that appear to be unsustainable. Um, unit labor costs in several countries are well above the German level, and so that makes their industries uncompetitive and uh, shrinking. Um, and there's there have been these dramatic crises in, in Cyprus and, and Greece recently, and uh, the fiscal and competitive challenges, even having gotten those behind us to some extent, are still very widespread. Um, so it's at this time it's hard to see um, how the struggling countries are going to return to rapid growth um, anytime soon, uh, rapid growth with sustainable fiscal policy. So Europe has a ways to go uh, before the dust clears. Another challenge comes from the need uh, for our economy, comes the, from the need of a lot of firms to adjust to a, a really large volume of new regulation that's been added uh, in recent years. Uh, and this has been quantified, um, and it's just been tremendous. Uh, this isn't the place to for me to really hash through sort of the, the merits one way or another. I'm not going to comment or take a position on whether any given regulation is a good or bad thing. But I'll note that even if a regulation has a net social benefit, um, even if those benefits are significant and positive, businesses may f face large uh, compliance costs uh, and a large amount of uncertainty um, about how those regulations are going to be implemented that affect their hiring and investment decisions. And based on our anecdotal reports from around the Fifth Federal Reserve District, um, that seems to be key. Um, so let's take a step back and survey this landscape. 
that we've been looking at. I'll, I'll, I'll sum it all up. Prospects for housing and business investment look strong. Uncertainty about fiscal and regulatory policy in the U.S. Uh, and the economic activity in Europe um, are an offsetting drag on growth. Consumers are cautious, understandably so, I think, given what they've been through. Uh, and they're unlikely to drive a surge in spending. Adding it all up, the economy's current trend uh, rate of GDP growth appears to be around 2%, perhaps a smidgen above, but right around 2%. I think we're likely to see uh, brief swings above and beyond, uh, below that figure from time to time, uh, as we have over the last couple of quarters. But I don't see a compelling case for sustained departure uh, from a 2% average growth rate anytime soon. Now, that's a change for me. Like other forecasters, I've been looking for GDP growth to significantly accelerate a year or two down the road. In fact, you've if you've attended the last few of these, you've heard me probably heard me say that ever since uh, 2009. Um, but I'd add that I, I think the challenges, given the challenges our economy faces, I think 2% growth looks like a fairly good outcome. Uh, it represents significant forward momentum, sustained real income gains. Uh, maybe not as rapidly as we'd like, but sustained real income gains. And it really, it really demonstrates the resilience of the American economy. We've weathered a huge shock in the most recent recession, and we're back on a solid growth track, uh, despite an array of obstacles uh, being put in our way. So I think this is a heartening picture, given all we've been through. So let me end with a few thoughts on monetary policy. Uh, the Federal Reserve's policy is exceptionally accommodative right now. Uh, with short-term interest rates near zero and our balance sheet uh, at a size that's four times the size it was before the financial turmoil began in 2007. A highly expansive policy is an appropriate response to a severe recession, I believe. Uh, growth has resumed, however, and it appears as if it's limited in large part by structural factors that monetary policy is not capable of setting. Moreover, inflation is fairly stable. In this situation, to me, the benefit-cost trade-off associated with further monetary st stimulus does not look promising. The Fed seems unable to improve real growth despite striving mightily over the last few years, and further increases in the size of the balance sheet raise the risks associated with the exit process uh, that's going to accompany uh, withdrawing stimulus when the time comes to withdraw stimulus. That's why I do not support the current asset purchase program. Keeping inflation low and stable is within the capability of a modern central bank. On that score, uh, the recent behavior of inflation has been heartening. Uh, measures of inflation expectations, as I alluded to earlier, remain within ranges that are consistent with price stability, and the low current readings on some inflation measures look likely to be transitory, uh, look likely to be reversed in coming months. Well-contained inflation is the most fundamental contribution a central bank can make to economic growth, and that seems likely to continue. I thank you for your attention, and I'd be glad to take any comments and questions. Thank you. Billy.
you know, that's uh, when you when you look at the productivity numbers, it's it's just it's the first thing that pops to your brain. But I have to say that pinning down the evidence in a really conclusive way is exceptionally difficult, and it's just it's beyond our capability giving the data we have at the same at this time. You know, you can tell a narrative, you can tell a story, and it's a very plausible one. Um, but we've seen swings in productivity growth before that seemed unrelated to regulatory burden. Um, so, for example, we had a kind of a lull in productivity growth in the late 70s and early 80s, and then a real pickup in the 90s. And that seemed to be associated with just the pace of technological change. Some technological breakthroughs are more um, have more pervasive implications than others. Uh, right now, there's a lot going on, um, and you know, you look around at firms in different sectors, and you're kind of surprised. Like, I didn't think agriculture was, you know, a hotbed of technology change, but you know, there's sort of new ways of, of uh, you know, getting cotton out of the fields, for example, and um, and and we've got this incredible fall in communications costs, and the sort of the ubiquity of access is improving dramatically. And I, I think we've only barely scratched the surface of um, sort of access to um, incredible amounts of computing and data power on a mobile basis um, can make possible. So I'm uh, encouraged about the possibilities, but um, certainly um, an adverse regulatory environment is something that is capable of slowing down um, productivity growth, and I think that's a hypothesis that deserves serious contention. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, so th this has to do with sort of different visions about, the question was about um, critics of monetary policy who say, look, growth is so disappointing, monetary policy needs to try and do more. That's the criticism, and you, you read that in certain columnists, well-known columnists, in fact. Um, and the, 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 there's sort of a difference in views uh, about, uh, underlying that criticism about the extent to which a central bank can really affect growth on a sustained basis. So we all agree that, that a central bank can clobber, clobber the economy. We can drive it into recession if we want, no question about it. Um, uh, we can push things a little faster ahead than they otherwise would be on a temporary basis. But that's strictly transitory. Eh? And the effect of any given monetary policy stimulus is going to die out in a couple of quarters, maybe a year or two. And I, I, I don't think, I don't see the evidence as strongly, you know, any, strong evidence uh, against that notion. So the idea that we could have made growth 3% in the last three years over, uh, rather than 2%, it's, to my mind, preposterous. Um, and so I think we're, I think central banks around the world, but, you know, particularly the United States, are, uh, when people talk about growth, are being held to, you know, an impossible standard. Um, I mean, you can wish uh, that we would make, could make growth higher, but that doesn't mean it's possible or feasible for a modern central bank. There was one in the back there. Yes, ma'am. Good question. So the question is about the, the increase in um, uh, college-related, uh, education-related student debt and student loan debt and its relationship to the cost of college. Well, the, 
if you look at the numbers, the returns to, a, to somebody from going to college appear to be fairly high. So it looks like a great investment. So you would expect more investment. And um, if, if the returns, you know, are, if, if, if a lot of people that are good candidates for earning those big returns by, by getting higher education uh, don't have the wherewithal to fund it all in cash, don't have the wealth up front, which is pretty plausible, you, you should expect to see increases in that premium associated with increases in student debt. Um, I, the worries I have about um, student debt are that, you know, in certain sectors of the market, uh, debt has grown rapidly. The presence of government guarantees, I think, is distorting incentives in the student loan market. And it makes me worry that, um, that somebody's not minding the store and, and the kids are going to get hurt. Kids are going to get encouraged to take out a loan. Uh, to attend, uh, and this is particularly uh, a concern of mine in the for-profit sector, uh, they're going to they're spend borrowed money, they're going to end up with a debt and without much by way of increased skills, or, we, or without by what you, by, much by way of marketable um, skills. They'll, they'll end up in a, jo- uh, in a market for which there isn't much demand, and it won't be dischargeable in debt, and it'll, it'll, it'll be a, a burden, a terrible burden on them for, you know, a decade or more to come as they work their way out of that. That's what I worry about the, and you, you can understand the, 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 the impulse to try and uh, defray, help defray college education costs, but doing it through a, a credit guarantee is an exceptionally dangerous course, and I think we need to be really careful about that, and I worry that student debts, that some markets in student debt, some types of student debt are getting out of control and we're going to hear a lot of, uh, about a lot of bad outcomes years from now. Um, no, it, it sort of didn't. Um, now, we, the, the back story on, is about the employment report that came out at 8.30 this morning. So the back story is, the Mar- this is for April, um, and the, the back story is the report for March was surprisingly low at 88,000 per month. Now, we'd been averaging substantially above that, and people had been expecting a number like 175,000 new jobs in March. So it was really disappointing. And since then, people have been uh, talking about uh, sort of an adverse outlook for jobs. Well, um, this report was strong. 165 was, it was sort of right down the middle, you know, right along trend we've seen, right, consistent with a lot of other recent reports. And the last two months, March and February, got revised up by almost 100,000 jobs. So it's, it's a il- vivid illustration, I think, of the danger of um, pinning too much on one given month's report, particularly the jobs report, because it b- can be easily reversed. Uh, and we saw this last summer when the initial string of job reports were, were pretty disappointing, but they got revised up by 100% or more uh, for several months. If you look back over the last six months, uh, job growth has averaged over 200,000 a month. We've seen swings around that, but it's averaged 200,000 jobs a month. And that's a significant step up from the previous six months. I don't think there's any question that that we've seen a substantial improvement in the labor market outlook over the last six months. And I choose those words carefully because um, you'll recall that the um, those who are reading tea leaves about federal open market committee policy, that we've we had a uh, you know we've embarked on this asset purchase programs, 
and announced that we would continue until we saw a substantial increase uh, and substantial improvement in labor market outlook. I think that's clearly occurred. I think that um, focusing on just the last month or two of the data is a mistake. I think you need to, in evaluating that, that, that pledge, you need to evaluate the broad um, sweep of the, the entire period over the last uh, four to six months. And I think from that point of view, it's clear that um, the, the labor market outlook isn't worse, and it's, if anything, substantially better. I think a case can be made for that. And I, you know, I think you ought to evaluate the likelihood of us reducing the pace of um, purchase asset purchases accordingly. That's a good question. So you know, our job is to keep the a broad basket of consumer prices um, on a steady, even keel of two percent. And you know, it's tricky sometimes the way energy prices fluctuate pretty wildly from quarter to quarter. Uh, we can get bulges of inflation. We've gotten, we've had four percent numbers. We've had negative one percent numbers. You got to kind of see through that and look at the trends. Thankfully, with energy prices at being storable, those being storable commodities, the futures market curve can give you a sense of what a you know a good market-based outlook for future energy prices ought to be. More broadly, what's going on in the United States with the energy revolution has been. Um, shifting economic activity around and uh, opening up economic opportunities that are, um, you know, impressive, um, potentially quite impressive, um, and I think, um, uh, you know, augur well for, for some sectors that are energy dependent um, and could help us for years to come. The idea of us converting in, you know, within a decade to an energy net energy exporter is mind-boggling, would have been laughable five or ten years ago, but um, I think it's an exciting prospect for, for America and the world. It's a good question. So the growth has uh, clearly slowed a bit there. Um, they, they seem to dodge a sort of recessionary bullet, but you know, th we're talking about an economy whose growth fluctuates between 7 and 10 percent. So a recession is so far away from them that um, it, it's sort of not even on the table. Uh, it's an economy that's um, generating a, just a huge increase in standards of living for a, just a gigantic fraction of the world's population, and you've got to cheer them on. Um, they have very serious macroeconomic policy challenges. They have very serious regulatory challenges. They have very serious challenges on a wide range of fronts. Um, and, uh, you know, one hopes that they can sustain, you know, a transition from, you know, heavily export led uh, growth to um, growth that's more internally oriented where they're, um, you know, they're satisfying consumer demands and uh, building for their own economy and not so export oriented. I think we've seen, you know, the pivot towards that over the last couple of years and their success at transitioning the focus of uh, their investment um, in that direction um, is, uh, is critical. Um, so the, you know, the slowdown there is, has has uh, cut a little bit into worldwide sort of uh, demand, and you've seen it in commodity prices being soft in the last couple of months. It's also cut into you know our export demand to some extent. On the flip side, though, the the gap between um, uh, the, so the wage cost advantage of taking, say, a furniture operation in Hickory and moving it to China has eroded substantially, and, and now, you know, some people say it's virtually gone now. And we've seen some reshoring. 
uh, driven by sort of the evaporation of that, the transport costs now loom large. And uh, in addition, the kind of governance challenges, particularly related to intellectual property, uh, that are relate that uh, you that operating in China brings with it are um, you know are a, sort of a larger magnitude to some firms than they expect, and I think that's cutting into that offshoring demand as well. So uh, that's going on as well, and that's it's natural. Their wages are going to kind of catch up to the world standard, and and that was bound to be a challenge for them. Back here. Good question. So the um, numbers that we all focus on and, and, and know and love are seasonally adjusted. So statisticians do a very careful, patient, rigorous job of figuring out what you ought to expect for uh, the labor force in June and July um, with college workers coming on board and all that. And they take that out of the raw numbers and give you a number that's adjusted for the seasonal ex fluctuations that you would expect at that time of year. Now, having said that, it's a little bit of an art form because those seasonal factors kind of slowly evolve over time. You know, the fraction of people going into school, um, how, you know, when the school closing dates are, they shift sometimes in the calendar. And so there's always a little bit of kind of noise to that process. But... It's, it's a terribly important one for, for, for us economists looking at the data. For example, I think the, um, the non-seasonally adjusted, if I'm right, increase in employment in March was a couple of million and the, the, on net, and the seasonally adjusted increase was 88,000. So it gives you a sense of the huge swings in the raw data, and we're trying to figure out the net part that's sort of adjusted for typical seasonal factors. That's another way of sort of getting your mind around kind of the noise in month-to-month -month employment data. But we try and take it out, but it's a little tricky. I think the euro can survive if they wanted to, and I think that... Um, the, the question of whether they wanted to is a political one. It's a question of uh, what sacrifices they want to make. It's also a question of solving some uh, policy problems, policy questions. So they began by unifying their currency. They could have selected, they could have chosen, if they wanted to, to forego a fiscal union. The United States, for example, is a currency union among the 50 states, and yet we do not have a fiscal union. New York taxpayers don't pay for California's state deficit, pure and simple. No one expects them to, so no, there's no crisis if one, you know, one state has a... Um, so, and it doesn't threaten the, the, the monetary union that is the U.S. dollar in the United States if one state has a big problem. But instead, the Europeans acted from the very beginning as if it was a monetary union. They did that by saying, well, to join, you have to have a low deficit below a certain threshold, and your debt to GDP has to be below a threshold. Why would you do that unless it was a monetary, uh, unless it was a fiscal union? Now, then they get down the road, and they, it, it turns out what they stumbled upon, and maybe they realized this, was that they, they didn't have an effective means of policing those limits on deficits, of actually ensuring compliance with that. Moreover, in the event that some transfers were needed to um, put into effect the fiscal union to actually back one 
sovereign, um, you know, with resources from others. They didn't have effective mechanisms for actually doing the bailouts. So they've had to build the bailout mechanism and build the rules of the road that will give investors confidence that they can enforce monetary di fiscal discipline going forward. And that's the – while they're building these two pieces of what you need for an effective fiscal union, it's going to take a little while um, before they finish that job. Uh, and so wish them all the best. One more question. Lucky person is right there. I, yeah, I just, um, I, I just, there isn't a lot of good research on that question. There just isn't a lot of good uh, analysis of that. Um, you know, you can look at, at, at just sort of trends. You can kind of look at the number, and you look at women having entered the labor force in huge numbers. So labor, women's labor force participation in that prime working age has risen. It peaked in 2000, and so we don't have that to help. And then men's has been declining a little bit, and you can point to things like, disability, um, and some other things, but no one's really sort of parsed it all out and really, you know, provided us with a really strong set of evidence behind one home hypothesis. Not looking for, if you want to do some research, that would be a great, productive, socially useful thing to do. Thank you all very much. It's been an absolute pleasure.